Do any of you have one of these? That's like a dumb question, isn't it? You know what this is? This is called a smartphone. But I am not a good person with phones, so this smartphone makes me feel very dumb uh, most of the time. I just don't know how to, to work it very well. Um, and I found an interesting statistic. I was talking with uh, some pe- people earlier, and both of them, uh, the couple together, they're both on their phones, like before church started, they're just like into it. Uh, I'd like you to take a guess real quick to turn to the person beside you. How many times does the average American look at their smartphone in a given day? Okay, go ahead. Okay, anyone want to take a guess? It is 150 times that you go like this. 150 times. And the average American spends two hours a day looking at this, calling on this, talking on this, whatever. But what's really cool about a smartphone is, like, you look important. Like, you look successful. Like, I mean, look at me. I mean, I am. You know, like, look at this. Like, this does everything. My dad has this. Now, I'm going to offend some people, so just want you to know. But my dad has this old flip phone. And when he has to flip that thing, I know, he doesn't look successful. You know, he doesn't at all. And we've been trying to encourage him, you know, get to the 21st century. But uh, he's not quite there yet. So um, that's it. And so. We have this device, and what's so amazing about it is that I can be called by anyone in the world. They can text me. They can send me an email. I mean, I am important when I'm holding this particular phone. I mean, anybody in the world can get a hold of it. But this is what I've found. This device steals a lot. Of my time. It steals a piece of my identity. Any of you remember uh, when pagers were real important? Remember that? And uh, some of you, like, if you're under 20, you're like, what's a pager? Okay, Google it real quick and you'll find it. So, um, so a pager, and You may not know this, but my wife is a physician, and so for most of our marriage, she always had to carry a pager. And we would go to these doctor functions, and like everyone has their pager, and they're going off, like, you know, looking at it and calling people. And I just felt like I wasn't very important at all. And I would, like, you know, I, I I don't have a pager. And so I was out golfing with these three other guys one time. They were all doctors. And we're golfing. You know how like some people are country club material and other people aren't? I'm in the aren't, okay? That's where I'm at. And so we're at this country club. We're playing golf. And they're all got their pagers. And we get past the ninth hole. And I start feeling kind of self-conscious that I don't have a pager. So I said, hey, guys, I got to go here for a second. I left something in my car. And I went and I got my garage door opener. Okay, and I bring it back and I put it on my pants because, you know, I just felt like, hey, I want to like, you know, thank God, you know, they didn't say, hey, your pager's going up. No, it's my garage door. I, you know, I'm always wondering where my garage door is. Um, 
So, so this image thing, folks, we like to keep it up. And we will go to great lengths to try to keep it up. For example, think about whenever you want to see this at its extreme is when you go to a high school class reunion, right? I mean, you go to a 10-year class reunion or you go to a 20-year class reunion, and it's like everybody is showing their stuff, wanting to impress the other people around them. I mean, someone shows up and they remember that, you know, they were the least likely to succeed. And they're like, I'm going to show them. And so they rent a car, a really nice car, and they act like it's theirs. They rent a really nice suit and they show up and they act like it's theirs. They even rent like a really nice date, you know, and they're like, "Whoa, she's hot, man. You know, or he's handsome. Yeah, I know. Okay. Kind of reminds me of the doctor who uh, had a 92-year-old patient, and one day uh, she, he sees that um, he has this very, very attractive young woman, much younger than her, than him, on his arm. And the old man comes up to the doctor and says, hey, doc, thanks so much for this great advice. And the doctor is like, well, what advice? And the old man said, Well, you told me to get a hot mama and be cheerful. And the doctor said, no, 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 that's not what I said. I said, you have a heart murmur and be careful, you know. (laughs) Now, any of you ever seen uh, the show Little House on the Prairie just by a show of hands? Okay. Um, Now, I grew up, honestly... We didn't like Little House on the Prairie. My brother and I, we made so many jokes about it, you know. But you know how, like, when you make fun of something early on in your life that sometimes later on it, like, bites you? And so I got married to, like, the biggest Little House on the Prairie woman ever. I mean, she has all the DVDs. She has, like, everything. And so I had to go through the pain the first few years of marriage, you know, going through all of these. But eventually I really learned to enjoy it. Now we're showing our girls and we're so excited about it. Well, I'll never forget a particular uh, episode in which Charles and Carolyn um, were going to uh, their high school uh, graduation or their high school anniversary. And uh, it was the 20th anniversary. And they went to this big city of Minneapolis, and they have this reunion. And when they get there, everybody who's there is, like, really, really successful and very wealthy. Everybody uh, is dressed up, and they've got these good jobs, and they show that they have a lot of money. And Charles and Carolyn uh, felt uh, so much out of place uh, because they lived in just a little house on the prayer. And as the show unwound, you see all these people and they're very, very affluent and wealthy and successful, but they have lousy marriages and they don't have any real friendships. And everybody's playing this game except Charles and Caroline. And this particular kind of miserable woman comes up and she kind of puts a move. On Charles. And they're sitting at this little creek and she looks into his eyes and she's just taken by how this simple man who is strong is so good hearted to everybody. And she actually takes his hand. And it's one of the best lines that I'd ever heard before. But she takes his hand and she goes, your hands 
are so gentle and strong. And Charles looks right back at her and says, yeah, they got that way from shoveling manure. And she kind of tosses his hand away. And the, and the show kind of ends. The two of them get out of a stagecoach. And they look down upon this little house on the prairie. And their kids come running out to them. And they're yelling, Ma, Pa, Ma, Pa. And Charles turns to Caroline and says, If that's not successful, I don't know what is. And the credits roll. You know, it's the funny thing about success. We get defined by it very early on in our lives. My two girls are seven and five, and so we've gone to a lot of parks in Muncie. You ever been to a park before and just listened to the parents? Uh, These are some of the conversations that people have actually come up to me and they've had. Uh, Here's the first question. So when did your daughter learn how to walk? And I mean, the lady said it just like that. When did your daughter learn how to walk? And Shiloh had a head that was in the 120th percentile. That kid didn't walk until she was four. I mean, we were like, you know, so excited when she was able to finally walk. She just had a big head, you know. And um, or, you know, they'll come up to you and they go, well, when did they learn to talk? You know, or how can they say or when did they learn to say their ABCs or how high can your child count? I had some friends of ours. Uh, they're very, very uh, intelligent people, very smart, wealthy, uh, and they have children, and they send their children to a Chinese uh, school on the West Coast. And they came to Indiana for a little uh, golf tournament that we had. And I'll never forget uh, the one little girl goes, uh, well, the, the, the mom said, um, how many languages do your children talk? I'm thinking, what are you talking about? And so I was like, I don't know. How many your kids, you know, how many languages do your kids talk? Well, our kids talk four. They speak Mandarin Chinese. They speak Spanish. They speak English. And they speak French. And I said, well, my kids speak two languages. Oh. I said, hick and English, you know? <laughs> I'm like, because that was it. And you should have seen. She got mad. They really haven't spoke to us in a while. But... The thing is, folks, with success, we do it at a very early age. You ever been to a ballpark before or in a gymnasium? Maybe they're playing some competitive sport event and you watch these parents. I mean, they come unglued. They go crazy. They're yelling at the refs. They're yelling at the coaches. They're yelling at each other. And then they yell at their kids. I read a story this week of a 13 year old who uh, is going to he's being recruited by a lot of different uh, basketball Uh, college basketball coaches right now and something happened in the game and the mom comes out on the court and yells don't mess with him he's my franchise and I thought man where's the success and they're just trying to live their lives through their kids then there's the pressure of making good grades now everybody should make good grades Because it's a way that you honor God when you do that. And I really do like the bumper stickers that say, you know, I am a proud parent of an honor roll student. But you know what I'd love to see? Some bumper stickers like this. 
My kid got a C and I'm proud of it. Or this one. My kid got a D minus, but he's a really kind hearted boy. You see, at a very early age, what we learn is uh, that we feel the pressure that we have to be bigger, we have to be smarter, we have to be stronger, we have to be faster, we have to be richer, we have to be higher, we have to be better than the other person. Remember in week one of our series, Identity Theft, we looked at a guy by the name of Solomon. He was the richest man in the entire world at the time. He had a thousand wives. He was the wisest person, maybe not the thousand wives, but everything else he was really wise with. And if you remember, in the first week we talked about, he went through all of life trying to figure out how he could take a square peg and put it into a round hole to fill the emptiness that he felt in life. And the guy eventually said that men and women, they really desire one thing, and that is an unfailing love. Let's look at what else he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It'll come up on the side screens. Solomon says, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success by their envy of their neighbors. Just imagine. But this, too, is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Friends, what makes us run so fast? What makes us work so hard? What makes us compete so intensely? I mean, part of it is that we're given these kind of God-given gifts within us to want to do the best that we can. And when we channel that in a very healthy way, things are great and things go well for us. But as I look around, what I often see are people with drives that are just out of balance. They're out of control. They're out of whack. People who will do almost anything for success. Even if it causes pain to them, their marriage, their family. So why do we want success? Why will we do almost anything for it? Well, I want us to look at three reasons why. The first reason that I think we have such a drive for success is because we hunger for acceptance. We hunger for acceptance. It's still amazing to me to see how many adults still walk around and they're longing for someone to say, boy," or that's my girl. I mean, we hunger for unfailing love and acceptance. And more of us than not are taught that the way that you get those things is by performing and being successful. So if I fly higher, if I run faster, if I do a little better, then maybe you will love me and accept me. And those things will be showered upon me until the next time that I fail. And so what happens is we build this into kids and you fast forward a few years when they became a man or a woman and they're still running fast and they're working hard and they're doing long hours because they're searching for acceptance that they never got. They're starved for unconditional love and they're saying, I feel like a nobody and I hate that feeling. I'm going to be a somebody. And I'm going to prove to everybody else that I am 
a somebody. If it takes more hours at work, I'll do it. If it takes seven days a week, if it costs me my health, if it costs me my marriage, if it costs me my kids, if it costs me my soul, I will pay the price because I can't stand feeling like an unloved nobody. So I will perform, I'll produce, I'll earn, I'll accumulate, I'll strive, I'll drive until I win, and then I'll be appreciated and accepted and admired. You see, the reality is, folks, is that some of us have a suffocation going on in our life. We just don't see it. And we're being suffocated by the fact that we long to please other people and we will do whatever it takes for that to happen. And what takes place then is we can't say no. So we overextend ourselves on projects and causes. Sometimes they're even good ones. But then you spread yourself so thin because you fear not living up to the expectations of someone else. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your kids. And in essence, you're saying, I don't care what it costs me. I want to be liked. I will be admired. I will be accepted. I will be respected. And tragically, folks, and this is true if you're a parent, If you're not careful, you can pass those things on to your kids. Moms, today on this special day, I was thinking that maybe God brought some of you here because maybe you're a working mom or you're a stay-at-home mom, but you're all based upon trying to get acceptance from everything around you. That maybe God brought you here to hear this truth. Because some of your kids, if we were to able to look at their little hearts and to read their little minds, they would say, God, please help my mom hear this today. Or please help my dad to hear this. There are some spouses right now that you got kind of a, a, a knot in your stomach. Because you know your spouse is doing that. Moms, you don't have to be a workaholic. You don't have to be a people pleaser. You don't have to strive. You don't have to perform. You don't have to be the best. You simply have to be the best that you can be. Because this is, this is the truth. You're already loved. You're already accepted. There is nothing you can do that's going to get you more love. The Father already lavishes it on His daughters who carry the title Mom. And so, I just wonder today, moms, dads, grandparents, what legacy are you going to leave? I mean, in your lifetime, if your legacy is spent on making money and getting plaques or awards or thousands of data boys or that's my girl, you might have worked your image to look really, really great and you might have looked very successful, but you will never really be loved. You will never understand how to live the life that God intended you to live. So why do we want to be successful? We hunger for acceptance. The second thing we hunger for is that we hunger to perform. We hunger to perform. Now, 
There's a story in the book of Luke, which is in the second half of the Bible, um, which is called the New Testament. And Luke was a doctor and he was a follower of Jesus. And he writes a story of Jesus encountering a person who the story is called the story of the rich young ruler. I strongly encourage you this week, write this down and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to read this this week. It's kind of a way for you to stay engaged. But I'm going to share the story with you today. The guy is kind of lost in this cycle of an identity crisis. This cycle of being, having his identity taken away. But he's committed to keeping up the image. It's a cycle of identity theft. On the outside, he looked like he had it all together. I mean, he's got his Abercrombie on. He's got his Kenneth Cole shoes on. He's young. He's handsome. He's got abs of steel. He doesn't have gray hair. Remember last year, or last week I had to confess how much gray hair I had, remember? He is the Abercrombie model. And I was going to give all the women a shirtless view, but my wife said that wouldn't be good. So if you really wanted that view, talk to my wife. But he's like this cover boy. He is this guy. He's got it like all going on. He's power lunching at the Jerusalem Club. He's driving a chariot with all the options, you know, even a moonroof. By all appearance, this guy has it going on, and he's got it figured out. But in reality, he's feeling empty because success has left him. And so in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, he asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to get eternal life? Now, did you catch the question? He asked, what must I do? You see, this guy is a high performer. He is a, an achiever financially and religiously. He's always had to do something. And so he asked, what must I do to get that? I think this guy is a lot like you and I. That we have it within our heads that our eternal destiny is based upon our earthly performance. That depending on how, how well we perform, that creates how our eternity is going to be spent. Well, friends, let me just tell you that your eternal destiny is linked only to one thing, and that is to a blood-stained cross that Jesus Christ went upon. Eternal life, folks, is not something that you can earn. You can't check off all the things to get it. It comes as a gift, and you simply say, I want to accept the gift. But the rich young ruler, what he asks is, what must I do? This guy is successful in Jewish culture. I mean, he's got it going on. And this culture viewed people that if you were rich, that you actually were closer to God. You were more blessed by God. So this guy is like working the image thing. In fact, he thinks that he worked it so well that he is in good standing with God. So Jesus kind of asks him a question. He says, well, how are you doing with all the rules? 
Like, are you obeying all the Ten Commandments? Can you say that you've done that? Let me just rip off a few for you. Don't commit adultery. How are you doing on that one? Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the guy pipes back. He's like, yeah, I've done all of those things, man. I get an A. I have done them all. I've done them to a T. I'm looking good. You know what, friends? When we live with a compulsive desire to project the perfect image to everyone else around us, when we try to look better than we actually are, so that people will admire us, the result is this, folks, that people never really get to know you. All you're doing is putting on a mask. A facade. It's a front. But God knows your true self. Look at what it says in Mark chapter 10. I love Mark's account. Jesus approaches this rich young man and it says, Jesus looked at him and what's it say? What? Jesus just looked at him and he loved him. Isn't that really cool? Jesus could see through the facade. He could see through the mask that this guy was trying to keep his image up. And Jesus said, I'll I'll look at him and I'll love him anyway. Jesus was like, yeah, you're really good. Man, that's great. You've kept all these commandments. You're doing the right thing. You look like you've got it all together. You've got the whole image thing like working. And then the passage goes on. Jesus says this. You still lack one thing. So everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At, the man, at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus here is like saying, you look like you have it all together. But you just lack one thing. Can you surrender everything to God? Can you surrender your one and only life to the God of the universe? He said, listen, you're bowing down to the wrong image. The one that you lack is complete surrender to the true and living God. You put him first in your life, and then everything else has a way of being made complete. The truth that Jesus wanted this guy to know is that, listen, God really doesn't have your heart yet, does he? He's got all your to-do lists, he's got your image, but he doesn't have your heart yet. He doesn't have your affections. And until you get that right in your life, You will never really know God. And because of that, you'll never really know your true self. And as as a result, it's like keeping you from really living life and where eternity would lead. You know, I've seen tons of pastors before teach on this passage. And what they do is that they focus on the money piece. 
This story, folks, when you read it this week, it's not a story about the money. Because the reality is, you can be poor, you can be broke, you can be homeless, and you can still be lost and empty. Jesus is saying here that it is a heart issue. Who has your heart? The guy's image, the guy's possessions had stolen his affection, had stolen his worship, and had stolen his identity. And it can do to you the same thing. See, we think of success in one way, but I think when God looks down upon us, he looks at success differently. I think God sees success this way. That when you know who God is, and when you know who you are because of who God says you are, and when you connect with Him daily, and you get to know Him, and you get to know His love, then all of a sudden, you start to have an image that reflects God. And when that image starts creating the doing of God's will, that's success. When your image looks like Christ. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 3. It's a verse we've looked at every single week. I'd encourage you to maybe think about memorizing a piece of this. But it says this. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in Him. May your roots go down deep into the soul of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand us as all God's people should. How wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ. Though it is so great, you will never fully understand it. Then you will be filled with the fullness of life and the power that comes from God remember, he says, grasp it, know it, capture it, really know God's identity so that you learn your identity, who he is and what he says about you. Friends, this God that we're talking about is as close as your heartbeat. It's as close as your pulse. If you took your pulse right now, and God, what He's longing to pulsate out of His heart to you is pulsating this consuming love that is given freely. In fact, God loved you so much that He sent His one and only Son wrapped up in our skin, and He learned how to talk and walk, and He stumbled and He fell. And he cried for milk, and he cried out to his mom, and he cried out to his dad, and he sweated blood in the night, with lashed by a whip, and showered with spit, was nailed to a cross, and he died whispering to even his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He died whispering forgiveness. To everyone. Grasp that, folks. 
Grasp that. Know that. Be captured by the love that God has for you. The consuming love. Because when you embrace your true identity as a child of God, this is what happens. You decrease your hunger for acceptance and you decrease your hunger to perform. I was thinking today, I hope some of you get starved to death by not having the acceptance. That you say, you know what, I don't need it anymore. I don't need to perform anymore. You stop running so fast and trying so hard to be somebody because, folks, this is the truth. You're already somebody. Listen to this. I may be tall or I may be short, but I'm somebody because I'm God's child. I may be skinny, I may be fat, but I'm somebody because I'm God's child. I may be black, I may be white, I may be Hispanic, I may be Asian, but I'm somebody because I'm God's child. I may be rich, I may be poor, but I'm somebody because I'm God's child. I may be young, I may be old, but I'm somebody because Jesus is my Savior and I'm God's child. I'm somebody. And this is the thing, folks. Once you know that you're somebody... You don't have to perform anymore. Because there's one who came and performed once and all for all the world to see on a cross. That's the only performance that was ever needed. He doesn't need yours. Last thing. Why do we want success? We hunger to be accepted, we hunger to perform, and we hunger for a title. We hunger for a title. This might be hard for some of you to believe, but at the age of 22, two small churches uh, that were in near Lafayette called me to be their minister. I mean, you know, like desperate people sometimes find desperate people. You ever had one of those relationships before? It's like you were kind of desperate and you kind of lowered your standards a little bit. And they were like even more desperate. And you're like, oh, man, you know, well, that was kind of the beginning of this marriage with these two churches. They spent a lot of time going, oh, man, who did we pick? And I'll never forget when we first got to this church, uh, Jennifer and I just uh, recently got married and they wanted to know what my title should be. And so they came up and they said, well, what do you want us to call you? And I was like, nobody had ever called me anything, you know, and the things that people did call me, I don't think that's good in a church, you know. And so I said, well, uh, What do you mean? And they said, well, do you want us to call you reverend? I was like, I don't even know how to spell that. You know, like if you don't know how to spell it, you probably shouldn't have that title. And then they said, "Um, well, do you want us to call you pastor? And like the only person I ever heard called pastor was my dad, Pastor Bunch. I'm like, I am pastor to anybody. I don't think you better call me that. And they said, well, do you want us to call you a minister? 
I was like, no, because like all of us are ministers. This isn't just a, a one-man show. Like we all are ministering to other people. And so finally, they were getting kind of frustrated. They're like, why do you want us to call you? And I said, just call me Chris, because that's what my mama calls me, you know? And that was it. You know what the truth is, folks? I really don't care what people call me. I could care less, to be quite honest. Any of you ever uh, had this experience before? You're, um, you get an old pair of jeans or pants that you haven't worn in a while. And you put them on and you're walking through the day. And all of a sudden, you reach your hand into the pocket and you pull out like a $10 bill. You're like... Whoa! You know? Like you're so excited. Well, every once in a while, Scripture does that for me. I'll be reading along in the Bible, and all of a sudden, I'll just kind of get this surprise. And uh, there's a passage of Scripture in John chapter 21, verse 20. It's kind of obscure. It's kind of in the middle of the story. But look at what it says. It says, Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest friends, turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Now, check this out real quick. Who was, for some of you, try to answer this question. Who was the disciple that Jesus loved? What was his name? John, right? Who wrote this? Good, you're so much smarter than the first celebration. I mean, John's up there. Like, you don't have to know anything about it. This could be your first time. Who wrote it? John! Yeah, John! Now, John could have said, just call me Reverend John. He could have said, call me John the disciple. Call me John the pastor. But he said this, hey, I'm just the one who Jesus loves. That was his title. And you want, folks, that's the only title that I need. It's the only one that you need. That's the only title that moms need on their special day. Because you are so deeply loved by God, so you define yourself as someone who's just radically loved by God. That's your true identity. Every other identity that you have is an illusion. You see, your worth is not found in your possessions. Your worth is not found in your reputation. Your worth is not found in your past. Your worth is not found in your title. Your worth is anchored in the love of God. The deep, the wide, the high, the long love of God. The one who tells me, hey, you're my kid. And I'm head over heels. In love with you. That's all you need. Last week we looked at a quote from a guy by the name of Henry Nouwen. I'd like us to see that again. It'll come up on the side screens. It says, even though you may not be chosen by the world, you are chosen by God. Every time you listen to his voice, you will discover within yourself a desire to hear the voice longer and more deeply. It's like discovering a well in the desert. Moms, you're chosen 
by God. The one who created everything that you see and you don't see, he chose you. He handpicked you to be the mother of your kids. But the greatest title that you'll ever have, moms, is not mom. The greatest title that you'll ever have is the treasured child of the Most High God. And moms, that's what you are. You are God's most treasured child. You're His daughter. He wakes up, or He wakes you up all the time. And He's trying to just tell you, you are my daughter. He's constantly thinking about that. That you are my treasured daughter. And he is so proud of each one of you. Well, the Bunch family is really excited to share with you all that we are adding a new member to our family. It is a hamster. My dad about had a heart attack back there. It's a hamster, and her name is Olivia. And my daughter, Jordan, moms, I love you because you love children so much. My daughter, Jordan, had this letter that she wrote in kindergarten, and it goes, Dear Mommy, I really want a little hamster. I will clean the cage. I will feed it. I will do whatever. Mommy, help me. And I'm thinking, that kid is lying, you know? (laughs) That kid ain't going to be cleaning no cage, you know? But my wife got that. Now, how can you not? And I couldn't even, like, you know, kids write phonetically. And I'm like, I don't even understand this. And she's like, no, we're getting a hamster. I was like, okay. So Olivia came into our house. Now, this is the thing about Olivia. She's nocturnal. So when everyone's trying to go to bed, she gets in this hamster wheel and she just starts going around and around and around and around. We've had to, like, put her in the garage, you know. And then my wife's like, well, that's not a long-term solution because it gets hot. Something could happen. Some of you are like, right now, if you're an animal lover, we are not coming back to that church. (laughs) We're done. We try to keep it real up in here, you know, at the job. But this is my question. I've listened to Olivia all week long. How do you get off the hamster wheel of success? How do you get off the hamster wheel of success? Well, it's pretty clear. There's a passage of Scripture in James 4.8. I want us to read this out loud together. It'll come up on the side screens. Draw close to God, and God will draw close to you. Maybe the most encouraging thing that you could receive today is to memorize that verse. Because the promise is so true. Every time I take a step towards God, it's a promise. He will take a step toward me, whatever I'm going through. 
And his steps, folks, are a lot bigger than my steps. I found in my life, whenever I take a small movement towards God, I see him making big moves toward me. Now, he doesn't force himself into your life. He doesn't break down the door. He's waiting for us to open it. Draw close to God, and the promise is that he will draw close to you. Remember this, moms, on your special day. You are not doing this journey alone. God is with you. As you draw close to him, he draws close to you. James 4.10 says this, When you bow down before the Lord and admit your dependence on him, he will lift you up and give you honor. Folks, when you know who God is, when you know who you are and who you are in his eyes, when you connect with him, when you draw close to him, then you will have this brand new image of who you look like. And this morning I was just wondering, is there anything that is stealing your identity? Has success become more important than your Savior? You know, the greatest learning and teaching my mom ever gave to me was she said, Chris, the greatest relationship in your life will be a vertical one. The relationship between me and God. And as that relationship is connected, as I draw close to him, he draws close to me. And then I'm able to know how to love the people around me. I just wonder today, where is your heart? And how could you honor your mom today? For some of you, maybe it's accepting Jesus Christ as Lord of your life for the first time. You can do that today. For others of you, maybe it's saying, you know what? I'm not just going to take this book and leave it on the shelf. I'm actually going to open it because this is the thing. You know what the Bible is? The Bible is not a rule book that beats you down. It's a love letter from God. And we have a, a plan that you can read so that you know where to start and where you can fill his love as you read it. For others of you, it might be picking up a Christian CD, listening to it. For others, it might be silence. You, you're a nature person. You like to get out in nature. Taking five minutes each day where you just are quiet before God and you look into nature and you draw close to him and he says, I'll draw close to you. And let me just say this. That if you need to make things right with your mom, like things aren't right, you're here, and every time we've talked about mom, it's just like, uh, then maybe you should make things right today. Because this is this thing. Whatever the issue is, you don't have to be successful about it. You're already successful. So be the first one to forgive. And for some moms here, maybe you need to reconcile with your kids today. I don't know what you need to do, but my prayer is that whatever it is that you do it, so that you can begin to have a more loving and healthy heart that's not stolen by success, but a heart that is connected to a Savior. Let's stand for closing prayer.
I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up. If today's your day, you're like, hey, I'm ready to, to make this commitment, I'd invite you to come up and, and pray with one of them. If you have other prayer needs, that you would pray as well. So let's pray. God, thank you for all that you give to us. Thank you especially for our moms who are here today. They brought us into this world and encourage us in so many ways. Help us to honor them this day and every day. Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that your love, God, is not based upon our success or our bank title or our account. But we thank you for loving us simply because we're called your sons and daughters. Help us to do whatever we need to do to change our hearts so that we could take a step closer to you, knowing in advance that if we draw close to you, you promise that you will draw close to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you guys so much. If you're new here today, please stop by Guest Connections. We have a free gift for you. And if you can help with Teardown, that would be great. We'll meet right over there. Thanks.